Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Lotus. And Lotus was enmeshed with her abusive parents. It's the story of generational trauma, the fog, trust, trauma responses, and escape plans. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of domestic violence. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, if you have not been to our website recently and want to be a guest on our show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Fill out that guest form after you read our instructions or send us an email that's been left there as well after you read our instructions. And please do read all of the instructions that are there. Also, you know, send in your stories. We need as many stories as, as possible to put out the best show as possible. So please do send us everything that you have. And also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we now have a community support button at the top of the page to take you to our very own safe social network. Our community members are on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings Wednesday nights and Saturday nights. We are probably going to start an afternoon one during the week very soon. We also have meditation nights. We have closure ceremonies, everyone. Our community members are on there. They are all amazing. So if you want some extra support, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, press support community today. Now, if you even need more support than that, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing and can connect you 
with local resources like shelters and find ways to heal and move forward. So please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource today. And before we get to our show, I just want to say a big thank you to Lotus. And Lotus is 19 years old. And we went through a process here with Lotus. It wasn't a normal process that we always do. And, you know, we had an interesting time from the moment I got the email from Lotus, knowing that there's something different uh, about her. And, and it's a really interesting episode. And the way the, the story is formulated, it sounds a lot like a relationship episode. There's a lot of the same plot points that are kind of going on. It's different from a lot of other family episodes that we've done in that way, that it's very noticeable that many things that are going on can be related to anyone that is in a regular a romantic abusive relationship. So a, a big thank you to uh, Lotus for taking part and a big thank you to Saturday, who's once been a guest on our show for uh, helping formulate the story with Lotus to to get to where we needed to uh, today for, for this show. So a big thank you to all of you. And I know this is coming out just after the Thanksgiving weekend. So for people that were struggling during Thanksgiving, uh, sending out uh, big hugs to all of you, uh, to the others, uh, sending you big hugs as, as well. So now, without further ado, here is my episode with Lotus. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Lotus. How are you? Good. Well, today we are going to hear your story, and it's a family story. And you were in in an enmeshed uh, family, a toxic environment. And I think you are the youngest person to ever be on our show. So I just want to thank you for, for being here. Uh, and you're going to share your story. You're going to help a lot of people. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. And now, without further ado, Lotus, the floor is now yours. So I guess with my story, I'd like to start with my parents. Both of my, my parents, they were born in the Philippines in different parts. My mom was born in the cities and my dad was born in the villages. And they both immigrated to the U.S. when they were really young. My mom came when she was 12. And my dad, he was even younger than that. He came over when he was about three or four years old. And so coming in from a completely different country, especially, you know, in the late 1990s or when they came, there was a very strong imposter syndrome for them. And so, you know, everyone was kind of placing a lot of judgment on them and a lot of prejudice. And there was increased familial expectations for them to do well and sort of prove everybody wrong that they did belong here and they weren't all these things people were saying they were. And all of this came to a head when my mom and dad were 17, because when they were 17, my mom got pregnant with me and then she gave birth to me when she was 18. And there is a really negative stigma for teen parents. And I think that was even worse back around the time that they had me. 
and everyone was telling her how horrible our life was going to be and what a terrible parent she was going to be. They said I was going to become a drug addict and that we were going to live on the streets and that they felt bad for me because, you know, my mom was a very poor immigrant woman. She didn't even have her citizenship yet. She still only had a green card. And so this negative feedback combined with the imposter syndrome for her childhood are the reasons why she came to prioritize image so much in her adult life. And so from the time that I was born, she began to construct an image of her family that wasn't true to satisfy everyone else. So on the outside, we were a smiling, happy, very American family. We celebrated all the major American holidays. We only spoke English. There's two loving parents who had a happy relationship. And there's two respectful kids who were quiet and smart. But in reality, we were very different from that. And in reality, my mom was vicariously living out her 18-year-old dreams in me and my sister. And we felt that pressure and we were expected to uphold this image for everyone as young children. And from that, we learned that what other people thought of you is more important than what you thought of yourself. And on the opposite side of that was my dad. And he spent his entire adult life in the military. He joined when he was 18. He's almost 40 now. So the military way of life was really the only one that he knew. And this led him to put a lot of those military cultural values onto me and my younger sister. So with my dad, there was very little leniency for any type of mistakes. It didn't matter how small it was. There were also a lot of strict rules starting from when I was very young. And with my dad, especially when he was angry, punishments were very severe. And he really prioritized obedience over individuality. We weren't allowed to act like kids. We had to be quiet. We couldn't run around or you know, yell, especially if other people were there. And going along with that, we weren't allowed to cry or be sad. And this was something that was really hard to maintain as a young kid growing up in a military family. Because, you know, I lost a lot of friends. We moved around a lot. When I was living with my parents, my family moved around 19 different times. We moved to three different countries. I ended up going to 12 different schools. And so with that came a lot of instability in my social life. I didn't have any friends who I built enough trust with to talk about what was going on at home. I didn't have any recurring stable role models for healthy relationships and communication all I had were my parents, and my parents were not the best role models for that. So and, w- with your parents here, mm-hmm. you know, your mom, your dad, they came over to America to have a better life, not just for them, but for their children. You know, that's, that's what, you know, coming over here is all about. And, you know, right off the bat, your mom and dad you know, have you, and, you know, that's not the way it was supposed to go, you know, especially Mm -hmm. for, I mean, I'm sure their parents were saying to themselves, this wasn't why we came over here. 
You know, we're trying to get a, yeah. away from this kind of life. So right away, you know, whatever rules that they're going to be placing on you or things that they want from you, they themselves didn't follow that own rule kind of right off the bat, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, and now your mom is doing everything she can to uphold this image and to kind of maybe cover up like, okay, this is what happened. And, you know, I'm going to project this from, from now on. And your dad being in the military was, uh, as far as prestige goes, did your mom, um, really enjoy that that was the path he took? Well, my mom, she liked that she had that financial support, but, you know, deep down, she was really just jealous of my dad and the fact that he had this career he built over the years and, you know, everyone at his job really liked him and supported him and needed him because that was the type of dream she had for herself when she was 18. And I think a lot of that resentment towards my dad about his job came out lot in the later years of their marriage, like especially right now. Like has your mom ever said what she wanted to be when she grew up? Oh yeah. She used to tell me all the time when I was younger that she had this big plan of moving out from her parents' house because her parents were also toxic and she was going to go to college and she wanted to get a bachelor's degree and then she was going to get a job where she helped people and where she did something and made a lot of money. And she told me that she was not supposed to marry my dad and she was not supposed to have kids. So right so. off the bat here for your mom, mm -hmm. she's in a life she never wanted to lead and yes. she's going to take it out on you. Um, mm -hmm. And for your dad, is he living the life that he wants to lead? Well, when my dad was younger, he didn't have that same direction or determination that my mom had. So for him, you know, military was just the only option he had at the time. And, you know, he didn't really come in expecting that much out of it. But I think, you know, like my mom, he kind of liked that image that it showed to everybody. Like, hey, look at me. I'm in the military. I'm higher ranking now. You know, look at my family. But I think the one thing that he didn't really like and doesn't to this day would be the type of relationship that he has with my mom. Because, you know, my mom, like I said, she holds a lot of resentment against my dad and she doesn't always talk about it. But when she does, it's very passionate and it's very hard to forget because, you know, she would just go after him for all of these things. And I think that's one thing about his life that, you know, he wished that they could change. And I know that he tried to change, but my mom is not a very open-minded person. So it's something that stayed constant throughout their entire relationship. So you're in this military family. Mm -hmm. You have two parents that are, 
uh, toxic in, in, in different ways. You're moving around a lot, which makes it even more difficult yeah. to get roots with anyone, trusting mm-hmm. people, and just long-lasting life friendships because it's just constant move, 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 move. Uh, and yeah. for anyone to validate your experience. So, uh, you know, I guess kind of take us, uh, from here, what happens next? So, you know, after that, it was, it was kind of difficult for me to become my own person living at my parents' house and moving around as much as we did. And it led to a really strong codependency between us where I was always depending on my parents and my parents were always expecting to make all of the big decisions about my life. And this sort of dynamic, you know, it worked really well when I was younger because we were in foreign countries. I didn't speak the language or know any of the customs. So I had to depend on them to make decisions for me. But then when I started reaching the age where I wanted to branch out and become my own person, it just hindered me because, you know, I was so used to having somebody make my own decisions for me. I didn't really know how to make any decisions for myself. And my parents were so used to being able to make all those decisions that when I started trying to do things on my own, I think it came off as threatening to them. And so they became even more controlling than they were before. And they controlled my extracurriculars, the friends that I had, how I spoke to my friends, the type of clothes that I wore, the time I went to bed, really everything. And I didn't really notice that anything was off or that things weren't normal in my family until I was about 13. And this was the point where my parents actually allowed me to sleep over at other people's houses. So when I did go to my friends' houses, I was able to see their dynamic with their families. And a lot of realizations hit me during this time. And I think the biggest one was that my friends were not afraid of their parents the way that I was afraid of my parents. Because even from a young age, I was always afraid that if I didn't do exactly what they said in the exact way that they wanted it, I was going to get in trouble and then I was going to get hurt. You know, emotionally, mentally, physically, somehow I was going to get hurt. And going to my friends' houses, I saw that this same fear wasn't with them. You know, I saw it in the way that they talked to their parents, in the way that they reacted when their parents talked to them. And I saw that there was a very solid bond of trust in that relationship. And they got more independence because of that. You know, their parents trusted them and pushed them to try new things and go to new places on their own. And their parents didn't always expect the worst from them. You know, like when my friends told my parents something, their parents didn't always automatically think they were lying or, you know, automatically make up a fake scenario that was completely untrue. They just trusted their kids. And that was something that we didn't have in my house. And my friends, they didn't have to constantly check in with their parents because, you know, the trust was there. And with me, I had to check in with my parents about everything. You know, like if I wanted to hang out with my friends, I had to give my mom a two-day notice. And if I didn't, she'd get angry with me. And I had to 
outline every little single thing that I wanted to do when I went to hang out. And when I did go to hang out, I had to call her every time that we went somewhere else. So, you know, if we went across the street, I had to call her or if, you know, I had already told her where I was going, but we were just getting there. I had to call her to let her know. And my friends, they started questioning that. And they started asking me, like, why do you have to do that all the time? Doesn't she know we're hanging out or we're just going across the street? Why do you have to call her? And I realized that I didn't have any sort of valid reason that made sense beyond because my mom said so when they asked me that. And that was kind of embarrassing, you know, because I'm trying to hang out and have fun. And then, you know, my friends are asking me why I have to call my mom every two minutes. And I don't even really know why. So for everyone listening who might be like, oh, this is, you know, uh, parent-child uh, stuff. This stuff happens all the time. The the parents are just, you know, being parents. You know, in, in some cases it might be that. But in in this case... Uh, with with Lotus, this is you know the beginnings of uh, real control, real enmeshment, and micromanagement of every little moment of your life. And uh, you know it's not being a concerned parent. It might be under the guise of being a concerned parent, but the reality is that it is uh, a way to control you your mom's frame of mind isn't of oh i i don't want her to get kidnapped uh, you know type of thing it's has nothing to do with that it, it, it's all about her yeah yeah and then like the way that she would express her anger over these things was just way over the top you know because she would say all these horrible things just because we didn't do exactly what she said exactly how she wanted it and at first I kind of laughed this off as an Asian family thing you know like oh it's just an Asian family thing it's a joke strict Asian parents haha it's it's okay it's not a big deal and then I actually had a friend who came from China and her relationship with her parents was night and day to my relationship with my parents you know she had more trust, more freedom, more independence. And she was actually one of the friends who was questioning all of the rules and regulations I had in my family because she was saying, well, you know, you're so old. Why do you have to do this? You know, you're not a kid anymore. And she was right because at the time she was saying this, I was 17, 16. You know, I was almost 18, but I didn't have any sort of individuality because in my family, it was really like the family above everything else. The household was very toxic. It was really just a place where individuality came to die. And I think this is because my family is an enmeshed family. And for anyone who doesn't really know what that means, it's really just the type of dynamic where the family unit is prioritized over everything else. And members of that family unit are put down if they try to leave the family or if they try to make decisions for their own lives outside of what's best for the family. And, you know, a lot of that putting being put down and that punishment happened to me 
a lot from the time I was a little kid to the time that I eventually moved out. And, you know, when I was a little kid, my parents, they would put us down into obeying through physical violence. So there was a lot of corporal punishment. And, you know, this type of punishment, it would get way worse if my parents are angry. So if they weren't angry, it would be, you know, maybe just a spank on the butt or my hand. But if they were angry, it would escalate to bruises or cuts and things like that. And when my dad got angry, he would throw things and slam doors or destroy things. Like there was one incident where he picked up an entire American Girl doll kitchen set and threw it next to my head. So he threw the American Girl doll kitchen to sort of scare me into, you know, like listening to him more and, you know, like just taking in everything he was saying as fact and into doing what, you know, he wanted me to do. And there was one major incident when I was 14, this was when my sister was nine and it was the morning before we had to go to school. And my dad, he got really mad at my sister because he said her desk was messy and he was yelling at her. But in my house, you know, yelling was pretty normal. So I didn't really think that much of it. And then all of a sudden I heard this loud crash from her room. So, you know, I ran in there because after that I heard her, you know, bust into tears and when I go in there, I see that my dad had flipped her desk into, you know, the walls and everything was everywhere. There was thumbtacks everywhere. There were scissors in that desk. And, you know, I yelled at him to stop. And I said, you're going to hurt somebody. And then he redirected all of that anger onto me. And it was very scary because at the time I was only like 130 something pounds. I was five foot one. And then here's this five foot six, you know, 180 pound man advancing on me and screaming in my face, like, shut the fuck up. I don't fucking care. Like over and over again. And I honestly thought he was going to fling me down the stairs. So I was very scared and I started backing up and then, you know, he stopped advancing on me. I, I don't really know why. Maybe it's because he saw how scared I was. And then, you know, he just yelled, us, yelled at us that we had to clean up the entire mess that he made or else he wasn't going to take us to school. So then we were just on our hands and knees cleaning up this huge mess that he made because everything was everywhere. And, you know, like my sister was crying the whole time. And then we just had to go to school and pretend like everything was OK and like, you know, nothing happened. And that's just how it was when my parents were angry and they were always so quick to get angry. So to sort of cope with that growing up, I became hypersensitive to my parents' emotions. And I was always constantly looking for signs that they were angry or that they were going to get angry. And so a lot of these signs were things like, you know, a slammed door or raising voice or you know, if I heard heavy footsteps coming in my direction, then I would sort of start preparing myself mentally like, okay, you know, they might be angry. Something might happen. Just be prepared. And when it came to your parents and how they talked to each other, uh, were, you know, obviously they, they were not meant to be married to each other. So were they always bickering mm -hmm. and yelling in front of you guys? 
constantly. They were constantly yelling at each other. And, you know, surprisingly, my dad, even the, even in the midst of all the yelling, he was more respectful towards my mom because my mom, she would call him all of these awful names, you know, like a motherfucker, a jerk, all this stuff. And my dad, he would just kind of take it. He would ask her, like, please don't call me that. And she would tell him, you know, this is how I am. You can take it or leave it. Like, if you don't like it, divorce me. And there was a time when I was very young where my mom got so mad that she started packing up all of her stuff. And then, you know, she just left. And to this day, I don't even know where she went. Like, I remember that she left. And then my dad was, you know, like super angry. And they were downstairs and they started yelling at each other. And he started accusing her of turning him into a monster, you know, by making him yell and making him that angry. And then she just left. And then when she came back, you know, like we had to pretend like nothing happened. And it was so weird because in those times, even though I was young, I would act more like an adult to sort of help them. So like with my dad, you know, I would make it seem like I didn't know what was happening and try to do things to cheer him, cheer him up, like, you know, play a board game with him and make all these jokes. But I did know, you know, like I did know what happened. I knew that my mom left. I knew what my dad was saying. I just didn't make it seem like I knew because I didn't want to add that extra pressure into their life. And all that really did was add a lot more trauma and negative stigma toward relationships in my life because, you know, this is the relationship that I grew up seeing. So to me, this is what a relationship and communication was. And that was kind of scary for me. So before we continue, I just want to point out something that you said. You had a quote earlier, which I wrote down. Mm-hmm. And I, I put a word in front of it. So, you know, just taking enmeshment. But you said um, where individuality goes to die. You know, that being, mm-hmm. you know, enmeshment, where, where individuality goes to die. And it couldn't be put uh, better than that. Uh, I mean, uh, for everyone listening... I mean, you're 19 years old. Yeah. And, you know, I spoke to you probably for, I don't know, what, 15 minutes when we jumped on a call because doing episodes with people who are 19 years old is not something that goes well. There's not a lot of per, per perspective uh, in in what happened to them at such a young age to tell their story in a way i it 's amazing that you 're nineteen years old and it 's kind of it 's sad in a way that you 're nineteen years old uh, because you had to grow up so fast to understand all of these concepts and everything and the nuances of everything but it 's also at the same time very impressive that you 're able to discuss everything here. In such a clear and concise way, and I just want to point that out to you, really, uh, that uh, you know you're doing a great job here, helping a lot of people, and we don't really have a young audience that listens to this show, but I hope that they listen to you, and somehow we'll try and get it to them because you're doing just a really wonderful job of uh, explaining who you are and how you, you know, what happened. 
And it's hard for someone to come on here who's 40, 50, 60 and, and to do such a job. And you are already just really impressive. So just thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. It's going to make me cry. (laughs) But, yeah, thank you. And then... um, Where were we? Yeah, uh, I was talking about (laughs) my hypersensitivity to my parents. So, you know, later in life, after I had moved out and started really making my own way, this kind of hindered me because I started to get scared whenever I heard somebody slam a door, even if it was on accident, or if I heard someone walk past my room, I would get scared because, you know, I would just think like, oh my God, something's going to happen. Somebody's angry. And then the moment would pass and I'd realize, okay, no, you know, like their door is just stuck. It's fine. And it's something that I'm still kind of dealing with now. It's not as serious as it was before because before I would kind of jump if I heard somebody slam a door because you know I thought something was going to happen and someone was going to get hurt and now you know I'm not as scared as I used to be but it still makes me nervous and you know I always get nervous now because of that hypersensitivity that I'm going to say something that makes somebody mad and I feel like I worry about that a lot more than I should and that stems from you know, that coping mechanism I had growing up because I had to know whether or not my parents were going to get angry in order for me to adequately prepare myself mentally. And if I didn't know that and it came as a surprise, then, you know, what they did to me and what they said to me, it hurt even more so than if I had been prepared. And then when I got older, you know, kind of into the double digits, a lot of that physical violence stuff wasn't as socially appropriate anymore, you know, because I was older, I was bigger then. So my parents started relying a lot on verbal abuse instead. And that came first in a lot of name calling and a lot of insults. So they would use a lot of hurtful language to me. It it was quite similar to the language they used for each other. So they'd call me a bitch, a motherfucker, a retard, an idiot, dumbass, stupid, really anything you shouldn't call a kid, my parents called me. And my mom, she used to tell me from a young age, I think this started when I was 12, that she wasn't able to do any of the things she wanted to do because she had a baby. And, you know, being 12, I didn't understand why she was saying that all I could understand was that my mom was telling me that I ruined her life in a way to where she was never able to accomplish what she wanted to. And I wasn't able to see that, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't as angry with it before or now as she was kind of before if that makes sense. Because when I was 12 and she was saying these things, it kind of came as a more melancholy tone. Like, oh, I couldn't do any of this. And then as I started retaliating against her, that's kind of when it became worse. And then she really started to resent me for it. And I think also because as I grew older, I started accomplishing a lot of things as a teenager that she didn't accomplish as a teenager. And I think that threatened her and you know like the image she had of herself 
And so, so, so I have a question, mm-hmm. you know, you're 12, 13, you're about to go through puberty or puberty is just starting. Your, uh, hormones are everywhere. You mm-hmm. also have to now deal with boys, which is <laughs> easy. And your mom is bringing up you not, you know, never wanting you. So mm-hmm. you have all these other things going on, all these other crazy things going on in your family. That thing right there, I mean, how do you recover from a parent saying that? Like, where where do you go downward there? Um, like, do you sit there and, you know, cry at night about, like, this and have your self-worth just be driven into oblivion? Uh, or, or did you kind of take that in, maybe not believe her and then strive to prove your worth? Honestly, it was kind of like a roller coaster because in the beginning, you know, I was so young when she was telling me these things and I was so impressionable. And I was at the point where I didn't fully recognize how toxic and narcissistic they were. So I fully believed that I ruined her life. And I actually felt guilty for that for the longest time. So, you know, like I had no self-worth because of that, because, you know, if I ruined my mom's life, what else am I going to ruin? And then I sort of took all that guilt and I turned it into, you know, my schooling. So I tried to be the best that I could be and win all of the awards I could to sort of make up for the fact that my mom couldn't do the same thing because at the time I thought that was what she wanted me to do, you know? So for everyone uh, listening, who's mostly listens to stories of relationships and in the relationships, you know, they all eventually turn into fear, obligation and guilt, the fog. And this is similar. You're living in the fog fear. You Mm -hmm. live in obligation and you live in guilt and they're using every manipulation trick to keep you in this enmeshed relationship. The only difference is you were never love bombed. Love bombing here is you were born. And, yeah. <laughs> and so you're going through, uh, you know, being verbally abused. And then I assume uh, gaslighting and threats start coming up as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of that was to try and make sure that we didn't tell anyone what was happening at home. So, you know, and I think another portion of that was just because my parents are pretty insecure for their age. And I think a lot of that gaslighting was to try and put us in our place, you know, and remind us that, you know, they were better than us because in my house, my parents were always right. And we were always disrespectful. And there's a, you know, really perfect example of this when I was 13 and my mom had asked me for an opinion on a situation and the opinion I gave didn't match up with her opinion. You know, it was the complete opposite. So for some reason, this made her really angry and she started, you know, saying all these hurtful things. She said I was stupid. I was retarded. My opinion was stupid. How could I say that? And then I just told her, like, listen, mom, it's just an opinion. It doesn't really matter because that went on for like 15 minutes. And by then I was so done with that because I had to go to school soon, you know, so I didn't want to hear all these things right before I went to school. And then after I said that, 
she blew up on me and she started cussing in my face. And she said, you better walk your ass to school because I'm not dropping you off. So to put it in perspective, the walk from my house to my school is about 30 minutes, give or take. And a part of that road to my school is a field road where there's nobody there, but a lot of cars pass through. And as Asians living in a small Hungarian town, we were followed a lot because, you know, there weren't a lot of Asians in that town. So we were followed a lot. People would say a lot of hurtful things to us. And my mom had put me in a situation where it was very easy for somebody to hurt me without anyone knowing because she was angry. And I couldn't understand this at first because, you know, all I told her was that it was just an opinion and it didn't really matter. And then now I think the reason why she got so angry is because, you know, like, how dare I be right? Because I was right. You know, like, how dare I be the one to say something mature in response to her very blatant immaturity? And I think that's what made her so furious. And, you know, like... When I got back home, my dad, he sided with my mom, of course, because my parents would always team up and they would always back each other up, no matter what it was, even if they knew that the other person was wrong. So they'd say like, oh, that never happened. We never did that. What are you saying? You're making that up. And this sort of gaslighting really came out when I got a boyfriend. Because when I got a boyfriend, my parents were very adamant that I was going to end up pregnant. And they'd have these long conversations with me about how I was going to get pregnant because I had a boyfriend. And I used to tell them like, no, I'm not going to get pregnant. And they would get angry and say that I thought I was better than them because I said I wasn't going to get pregnant. Which is crazy because I never said that. You know, I just said, I don't, I'm not going to get pregnant. And, you know, they'd say all of that stuff. And, you know, like for a second, it had me kind of feeling guilty because I was like, oh, you know, they feel really bad about this. You know, should I try to make them feel better? Like maybe I'm in the wrong for telling them these things. And it, it was just horrible, you know, because how else was I supposed to respond to that? I didn't know. And aside from that, my dad would often brag about the abuse he put me and my sister to or through to sort of minimize it. So there's one time where he had my sister and I squat against the wall with our arms out. And, you know, he told us like, oh, don't you dare try to get up, you know, to relieve the pain or don't you dare put your arms down because I'm going to be watching you and I will see if you do that. So, you know, we were terrified and we stayed like that for 30 minutes, just in complete fear and in a lot of pain because, you know, we're squatting with our arms out and we're little kids. And this whole time we're crying because it hurts so much, but we're terrified that if we get up, our dad's going to, you know, bust through the door and we're going to get punished even worse. And he ended up forgetting that we were there. And that's why he left us there for so long. And then he would tell all of his friends and our family members this like it was a joke. And it would make me feel uncomfortable and kind of sad because that was a very painful experience for me. And it's a painful memory, you know, and to hear him laughing about it like it was nothing, it was kind of aggravating, you know, because that was something that really hurt me. And then he's laughing at it like it was just a joke and 
oh, ha ha, I forgot them there. And it wasn't funny at all. So you mentioned your sister in this story, and you mentioned mm-hmm. her uh, earlier as well. Your sister is five years younger than you. So yeah. at this time, you know, you're, let's say, 14. She's nine years old. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your relationship like with your sister? Uh, and are you a protector of your sister? And is your sister, is you, are you the only person that your sister trusts? Yeah. Right now, I am a protector, but when our relationship first started, it started off more as competitors because we were always pitted against each other. You know, like, oh, your sister did this. Why can't you do this? Your sister does this all the time, things like that. So, you know, we really started off as competitors. And there were a lot of times when we were younger that we would even try to sabotage each other, you know, like the classic snitching or you know trying to prove that we were better than the other one because if we were better then we would get you know the most love and that was you know the type of relationship we had and then when we were older and we were more mature we started to realize that we were in the same boat you know and it didn't matter if for one minute one of us was better than the other one because in the end we were still subject to the same abuse and the same toxicity And we started helping each other out, you know, and that's when I started becoming more of her protector and her friend instead of her competitor. And that's when she started trusting me more to talk to me about things and, you know, like to confide in me about things. And I think a lot of that came from specific situations where she was expecting me to act a certain way or to throw her under the bus. And I didn't. And I think to her that kind of proved that I was going to have her back and, you know, that she could trust me. And I wasn't just going along with what my parents said. And for me, it was kind of the same way. You know, like once my sister started backing me up on things and helping me out on a lot of stuff, I started, you know, trusting her more Then once we realized that our parents had made up a lot of lies about us that they told to each of us then, you know, like we were able to sort of erase those lies and we started building a relationship that had a lot of trust and friendship in it. And, you know, my relationship with her towards the end was the only good relationship in that family that I had. What was an example of an, a lie that your parents would tell you about your sister? Okay, so my parents used to say things like, oh, your sister is you know, like irresponsible and all this other stuff. And they'd say these mean things about her, like, oh, you know, look at the way she dresses. She dresses like a slut. And my sister was just wearing crop tops, you know, like normal teenager things. And the thing about my sister is that she's bi. So my parents would say all these terrible things about her because she was bi. And they'd be like, oh, we can't encourage her to be bi and stuff like that. And that was the sort of things they were telling me about her. And then, you know, the things they were telling my sister, this actually started, you know, in my junior year of high school. Because in my junior year, I started going through a really rough time. And I was beginning to accept, you know, how toxic my family was. And I was going through a lot of changes. And I started contemplating suicide and experimenting with self-harm. And I eventually was so lost and afraid that I shared some of what I was going 
through with a teacher. And that teacher ended up reporting that situation. So the school had my family attend family counseling. And so before that, before we went, my dad and mom told me all these lies about how my dad was going to get fired because of what I did and how, you know, like I made them look bad. And then they told my sister that I lied about self-harming and I didn't actually self-harm. And so, you know, that kind of turned her against me for a little while because this was something serious and she thought I lied about it. And you guys are so enmeshed. Well, you, Mm -hmm. you, you, the family is so enmeshed with each other that your sister takes it as a threat to the family as she's been taught. And that Mm -hmm. is not allowed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and she thought I was hurting the family intentionally because what I said to the counselor and kind of the fact that I was struggling so much during that year was completely forgotten and swept under the rug. It was just, you hurt your mom and your dad by saying all these things. You lied about all these things and, you know, like just all of this stuff. And so when I ended up talking to that counselor, I did lie, you know, and I made him believe that I was okay and everything was fine because I was so afraid that if I didn't do that, my dad was going to get fired from his job or, you know, people were going to keep looking at my mom and dad weird and all of this stuff, you know, so I lied. And then after therapy, you know, once I was cleared and everything, because of course I was, you know, like I didn't tell the truth. And my parents, they started using what the counselor said and twisting it to support themselves. And they would use it to invalidate my feelings. And they insisted that I was a liar. And they 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 made up the story that I lied about the whole thing to make them look bad. And they didn't even think for a second that maybe I was actually hurting and maybe I was actually, you know, in need of help because it was just all about them. It was a big ploy to punish them. And so they told me that the counselor said they shouldn't punish me for what I did because if they did that, then I might never reach out for help again if I really needed it. And they told me that. And they said, the counselor said you shouldn't be punished, but you deserve to be punished. And because the counselor said that, that's the only reason we're not going to punish you. And this led to me developing a lot of shame for what I did. And I held a lot of blame because I thought I ruined this, you know, image of my family. I thought I hurt the family unit. And so, you know, after that day for a period of time, I was like, I will never tell anybody anything again. And then, you know, I started punishing myself by going into serious health, self-harm, you know, because I believed that I deserved to be punished and nobody else was punishing me. So I had to punish myself. And that was, you know, cause that was supported by all the things that they were telling me and they continued to tell me and They would always use, you know, that period of my life where I talked to a teacher as exhibit A for what a terrible person I was. I mean, this moment right here is a a pivotal uh, moment as far as, you know, you're going to reach out for help and Mm -hmm. you're hurting really badly and you're trying to get out of that hole and all of a sudden, 
you know, just like in a regular domestic violence situation, you know, if someone was to go to the police and all of a sudden the story changes because all these things are overwhelming, all these things that mm-hmm. you're going to hurt the, you're going to, your dad won't be able to get a job, you know, yeah, all those things get reversed on you. And the thing you were going to do, it gets not just reversed on you, it sends you backwards into a deeper Whole. It's used against mm-hmm. you. Uh, it's used against you in the worst of ways and then provides another layer of guilt, of shame, uh, mm-hmm. of lower self-worth. And then it also takes away your voice on top of that, which is the most dangerous part of what just happened here, that now mm-hmm. you're too scared to say anything to anyone and you're truly alone in this spot and that's the the saddest part here that your parents didn't even consider that like Mm -hmm. it wasn't even a thought in their mind how you felt and it's sad and I'm sorry that you had to go through that you've and are most likely you're still dealing with the after effects of everything here it's not fair that that happened to you and so you know everyone listening is giving you a big hug right now oh (laughs) yeah you know like all of that stuff it really hurt me and I started seeing myself as not a part of the family unit during that time you know I saw myself as you know an outsider So then I had that imposter syndrome with my family because I felt like I didn't belong there. It felt like they didn't want me there. You know, like they were just, they just had me live there because I was related to them and, you know, they had no choice. So that's when I started seriously making plans to move out. Like I wanted to move out when I was 16, you know, and I started kind of planning that. But after my junior year of high school and after all that happened, That's when, you know, I pulled out the spreadsheets and the Google Docs, and I really tried to map out how I was going to move out. But the thing was, we were supposed to move back to the U.S. in a few months. So I was training or trying to plan out this entire move in a different country with very little knowledge of the U.S. because we were constantly moving all the time. So I didn't really know that much about what happened you know, or like how things worked in the U.S. And I was really just going off of things that I got from one of my teachers. You know, she recommended a state for me. And I started looking into that state and seeing the prices for things there and seeing, you know, how long it would take for me to get residency in that state and what colleges I could go to there and all this stuff. And, you know, I made spreadsheets for that and everything. And then when we did move to the U.S., I realized that everything I planned really had no bearing anymore because, you know, it was very harder than I expected it to be. And I feel like, you know, trying to plan this from a different country was kind of a, it was probably not the best idea, you know, because I didn't really know anything about the U.S. And then when I got here, I wasn't able to get a real part-time job. So the only job I could get that was okay by my parents was an after-school job as a tutor, but that job I only worked for an hour every single school day. 
So that wasn't enough money to move out at all. I think after that job ended, I only had like, you know, $300, $400 from that. And that's when I kind of realized that moving out right now was not going to be the best decision because I didn't have, you know, the financial support and I didn't have any social support, you know, because I didn't know anybody yet. We just moved there. And that's when I kind of gave up on moving out for the minute. And I just resigned myself to the fact that I was going to have to stay with my parents a lot longer. And then when the time came for me to pick a college, my parents really wanted me to go to a college close to them. And they kind of wanted me to live home too. And there's actually an offer I got where it was a two-year full ride to a different college that was about three hours away from my house, I think. It, it was pretty far. And, you know, they were going to pay for everything, tuition, room, board. I would even have leftover money because of all the money they were giving me to go to that college for at least two years. And my parents, they convinced me not to accept it. Well, you know, they relied a lot on the typical gaslighting. And, you know, like they kind of overwhelmed me with all of this information that I hadn't thought about before. They even made a spreadsheet for me with all of the information in it, comparing, you know, their plan to this college and pointing out all the reasons why I shouldn't go there. And I was just so overwhelmed by this onslaught of information and, you know, this onslaught of questions that I didn't know the answer to And it kind of made me feel like I was stupid for even considering going there. And then, you know, when the time came where I actually did move out, I wasn't really planning on it because I had been looking at rooms to rent before, but I never committed to anything. It was just kind of looking to see what was out there. And I think part of the reason I didn't commit was because I was so scared because I was still living my life according to what my parents wanted. Like there were times where I deviated from the norm, you know, but majority of the time it was doing whatever they said, whenever they wanted it. You know, I went to the school they wanted. I took the amount of classes that they wanted. So it was still hard for me to try and envision myself separated from the family unit. And then during that search, I actually totaled my car. So I was completely reliant on my dad's old car And after that, I just completely gave up moving out at the time because I thought to myself, well, I don't have a car. I don't have a place to stay. I'll just stay here because it's easier. So, well, before we get to to that and just remember where we are, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I'll just stay here because it's easier. What Mm -hmm. uh, my curiosity is, what did your parents want for you? Like, did they want you to graduate from this program, like work like, what did they want you to do for work or did they want you to find a, a partner and, you know, live the life that they had? Like, what did they want or, or, or at least have like your family or did they just want you then to really just take care of them? It's really just the overarching goal for them was for us to get really high paying prestigious jobs so that they could brag about it to their friends and so that my mom could, again, you know, vicariously live out those dreams in me and my sister, because, you know, getting a high paying job that was super prestigious was not something that I had ever told myself I wanted. It was something that my mom told me I wanted, you know, and then when I started 
questioning things. And when I started trying to embrace my individuality, it was kind of difficult because I didn't know what I wanted anymore because I was being told for so long that you want this, you want to get this degree, you want to get this type of job, you know, like you don't want to do any of this other stuff. And it was really, it was really confusing because I didn't know what to do, you know, and I think that was, that made it easier for my parents to manipulate me Mm -hmm. into doing what they wanted by, you know, just overwhelming me with all that stuff. So you, uh, you know, weren't planning on moving out and mm-hmm. you end up moving out and then the car yeah. thing happened. So explain the car stuff and we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I ended up crashing my car into the back of another car, you know, and it was like a pretty common mistake, I guess, but I still felt really bad. And then, you know, the thing is my car is really tiny compared to the other car. So the other cars were fine. You know, they just had a little dense, but my car was done. So I had to use my dad's car and that kind of made me more reliant on them and in their control more because I was using my dad's old car, you know, and it was like, oh, look what we had to do to help you out. You know, like, look what you made us do. So then after that, I just gave up completely and I just resigned to the fact that I was going to have to live with them for, I don't even know how long. And then, you know, leading up to the moving out, my parents and I got into a lot of fights and the biggest fight we had was over my parents' fake divorce. And this is what positioned the final nail in the coffin for me. It didn't really hammer it in yet, but it kind of really drove it home that, you know, living in this family is not good. And I say fake divorce because, you know, it wasn't ever going to happen. Like what had happened was my dad was forced to go on another work trip. You know, the military told him he had to go. And my mom, she always got jealous whenever my dad went on work trips. So this time when he told her he had to go, she threw this huge fit and was yelling at him and calling him all these names. And then she just said, I'm done. I don't want to be married anymore. This relationship isn't working out. And she said she was going to divorce him. And, you know, me and my sister, we didn't think she was serious because in my family, my parents would say a lot of things when they were angry, but, you know, usually they didn't mean it, especially if it was something like that. So we kind of just brushed it off. And then she pulled me aside and she sat me down and she told me that she was divorcing my dad and moving to another state to be with her sister and go to college which was a complete shock to me because, you know, I thought she was bluffing. And then I, I believe she was genuine in that time because there were tears in her eyes and we didn't have a good relationship. So the fact that she was confessing that to me made it seem more real. And I believed her. And I tried to put behind all of the resentment we had in the past so that I could be with her during that time. And then she revealed in another fight with my dad in front of me that she never meant to move out at all. And she just wanted my dad to tell her not to go. And the fact that he didn't tell her not to go proved that he didn't love her. And hearing that made me furious because I felt really stupid. You know, like here I was trying to be here for her, trying to rebuild a relationship with her and supporting her 
through something she wasn't even going to do. It was just a ploy for detention or attention, not detention. And, you know, it made me even more upset because after this all came out, everything just went back to normal. And we were supposed to just accept, my sister and I, that my parents were back together and this whole divorce thing, that never happened, you know? And they didn't even tell me that they got back together. They told my sister, but they never told me. You know, they just expected that I would find out because I saw them cuddling on the couch. And, you know, like it kind of made me feel disrespected because I'm their daughter too, you know? And even if we don't have a good relationship, I still felt like they should have taken that extra step they did with my sister and tell me what was happening, you know? And so my sister and I, we were quiet about this for a long time. We were kind of just angry to ourselves, but we didn't really say anything. And then I got into another fight with my mom and everything just came out. And I asked her, you know, what are you doing that makes this okay? You know, that makes you getting back with my dad okay? Are you going to college? What changes are you making? And she didn't have any answers for that. So she just got mad at me and started yelling and throwing things in my face to shut me up. But at that point, I was so angry, you know that I didn't care anymore. I was like, throw jeans in my face. I'm not going to stop talking, you know? And then I brought up too, I was like, why didn't you tell us what was happening? And then her response to that was, well, you should have found out anyway. And I didn't tell you because we don't hang out. And to me, that was insane because, you know, even if we don't hang out, I'm still your family and I deserve to know what's happening. And she got really angry at me that I wasn't backing down. Cause usually, you know, if I tried to stand up for myself, they would yell and yell. And then I would just stop talking and I'd start crying. But this time I was like, no, you're going to listen to me. I'm calling you out because no one else is calling you out. And you need to know that this isn't okay. You know, like you did something that manipulated the entire family emotionally, you know, and you did something that's going to affect our relationship with each other for a very long time, you know, and you need to answer for that. But she didn't want to answer, you know, so she just threw things at me and she ended up hurting me, you know, like she threw one of these, it was like this decorative turtle thing at my leg and it cut me. And then after that, that's when I kind of slowed down because I started bleeding a little bit and I was like, okay, you know, I'm done with this. And she was like screaming at me to get the fuck out. And then she went and she told my dad and all of my other family members that the reason I was talking back to her was because I was jealous of her relationship with my dad. And I was saying that she needed to ask for my permission to get back together. So even though it ends off in this negative way, that Mm -hmm. specific situation, is that the greatest moment of your life there? Honestly, it was like, I was so proud of myself because I never talked back to them the way that I did that time. You know, I always backed down, you know, I never completely said everything I wanted to. And in that moment, I was just done, you know, and like, it really kind of built up my self-esteem a little bit and my strength in myself to realize that, you know, even when she was doing all these things to me and yelling in my face and threatening to bite me, you know, and like throwing things at me, I still went back down and I felt pretty awesome. Like, I'm not gonna yeah, lie. like you started telling that story and I started thinking like, this is 
has to be the best moment of Lotus's life. Her yeah, mom is it, doing all of these things, and you're just standing there, and you're not backing down, and you're realizing it's just words and the stuff she's throwing. Mm-hmm. They're things, but they're just things, but you're still mm-hmm. standing there, and yeah. she can't do anything to take away you standing up. She can't yeah. do anything. And when she tries to and does the gaslighting smear mm-hmm. in at the end of it, yes, it's a smear and whatever, but it only emboldens you, in my, I'm going to say, or to my assumption mm-hmm. that this is what I'm dealing with. This is never going to change. Mm-hmm. And this is who she is. I know exactly what I said. I know exactly what I did. My mom is a liar. My mom mm-hmm. has all of these issues. And I feel like a million bucks because everything just bounced right off me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like they tried too to make me feel bad for what I did. And for the first time in my entire life, I didn't feel bad at all, you know? And they'd say things like, oh, you know, you got to be punished because you can't just do that. That's so disrespectful, like all this stuff. And I, I was just like, do whatever you want. I don't care. I don't feel bad. And I think they knew that I didn't feel bad. And that's what got them so angry because they keep bringing the situation up. And my dad would say, oh, you violated my marriage. You can't have my marriage. And I would just sit there completely unapologetic because I never said I wanted his marriage. You know, like, frankly, to me, his marriage is deteriorating, you know, and I feel like there are bigger things that they should worry about. And also, I feel like I didn't feel sorry because I know, like you said, that isn't at all what I told her. You know, it was just lies. So I was just like, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. I really don't care anymore. And that laid out the groundwork for me to really move out. And I think the thing that really nailed that nail in the coffin was when I came home the day before I moved out and I found my dad had made this chore chart for me and my sister. And these were chores in addition to the basic household chores I was already doing every single day and on the weekends. And it kind of made me a little annoyed when I saw this chore chart because I cleaned the house regularly and me and my sister were the only ones who cleaned the house. So, you know, like seeing this chore chart that he presented to us in a manner that made it seem like we didn't clean was kind of irritating. And then also it was the fact or not the fact, but the way that he presented it to us because he made us like stand up and, you know, look at him as he pointed out all these different chores in the chore chart and like defined the chores for us. Like he defined what vacuuming was for us. Like we didn't understand what it meant to vacuum the house. And that kind of made me more mad because it felt like he was demeaning me, you know? And it felt like he was sort of just saying all these things to make me feel stupid. Well, it, he, but, it's, it's, it's very condescending at that yeah. point to, to put the definition of, of it on there as well. He, yeah, he literally wrote it out and then he explained it to us. And I was like, I am 19 years old. You know, you don't have to explain vacuuming to me. But at the time I was like, okay, whatever. And I just told him 
listen, you know, I'm going to do my best to do all these chores, but I want you to know that I might not be able to do them every single day. Because at that time, I was working two part-time jobs. I was going to school full-time and I volunteered, you know? So I had a lot of stuff going on and I just wanted to let them know that I wasn't going to have the time to do everything they wanted to do. And also I think because I was irritated, it was my time and he was trying to plan out what I did with my time, even though, you know, like legally I was an adult. And when I said that, he blew up on me and he started yelling and he got really angry. And this kind of took me back or took me back because I was like, I'm not even trying to fight with you. I literally said, I'm going to clean. I'm just telling you, I'm not going to do it every single day, or I might not have time to. And he was just full on yelling. And then I got angry because I was trying to, you know, come at a compromise with him and he refused to compromise. It was, you have to do what I say. This is the expectation. And then my mom joined in the conversation and she was saying things like, oh, you're so disrespectful, you know, like. You're so spoiled, all this stuff. You couldn't make it out in the real world, so you should just be thankful. And, you know, I was really irritated, so I started going up to my room to sort of get away from the situation, and my dad called me down to yell at me again. And at this point in my life, I had gotten very good at stonewalling my parents. You know, like, I rarely cried when they yelled at me anymore, and I think the fact that I had so little emotion when he was yelling at me and calling me names made him even more angry because here he is, you know, like angrily pouring his heart out and saying all these insults. And then here I am just sitting there, you know, kind of bored because this is all things I've heard before. You know, he said it all before. It's nothing new. And then, you know, like he called me a motherfucker and then dismissed me from my room. And so I just went into my room. I closed the door and I was still kind of heated. And then I heard him yelling through the floorboards, like, you're a motherfucker, you're a motherfucker, like screaming at the top of his lungs to be sure that I could hear him from upstairs. And that was the moment where something in me just broke and I was done. And I refused to be treated like that anymore. And I, I didn't want to do it anymore. So I started, you know, packing all of my stuff. I started reaching out to people who were um, renting their rooms out on a website. It was called Roomies. I started reaching out to them and I was packing my things and literally anything I could find. So like a few bags, a duffel bag I found under my bed. And then I called my boyfriend and I explained the situation to them. And, you know, this whole entire time I'm talking to my boyfriend, my dad's still downstairs calling me a motherfucker. And my boyfriend heard that. And he was like, what is going on? Because my dad was so loud, my boyfriend could hear him through the phone. And I was like, oh, that's my dad. You know, I'm done. I'm not living here anymore. I'm moving out. I don't care. And my boyfriend tried to calm me down. And he said, you know, wait a minute. You don't have a plan. You know, like, why don't you just stay there a little bit and wait it out? And we'll come up with a plan. So when you move out, you know, it'll be a lot smoother and it'll be okay. You know, like, just wait a little bit, save up some more money you know, just wait it out. You know, you've been through a lot worse stuff before with your parents. This is nothing new. And I told him, if I don't leave now, I am not going because I know myself, you know, like, yeah, logically it would have made sense to say, but I know myself. And I knew that if I didn't leave in that moment with, you know, the anger and the courage that was propelling me, 
I was never going to leave. And I was going to keep convincing myself that it was okay. And the next time something like this happened, I was going to tell myself it was okay. And I think also, you know, from before, when my mom threw that turtle and cut me and bruised me, I kept thinking to myself, like, if I don't leave now, that's going to happen again. And I'm going to get hurt, you know, and I don't want to get hurt anymore. I'm done. And, you know, I, I kept packing things. And then the next morning, you know, like I predicted, I kind of started second guessing myself. And I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, like. My parents do stuff like this all the time. It's fine. Like, I can live with it. You know, it's fine. And I sort of just started browsing through the hotels on Google just to see what was out there. And I found one that was in my price range. Because at the time, I had, like, you know, five dollars $6,000 saved up. And, you know, I really hesitated before I booked it. And I was thinking, like, oh, you know, this is a really big thing. Like, what's this going to do to the family unit? you know, what's going to happen to them if I leave. And then I just remembered my dad screaming at me that I'm a motherfucker, you know? And that kind of just, that was it. And then I just booked the room. And after that, everything was just a lot smoother. And I didn't second guess myself once. And, you know, I just started planning out all of these things. Like I, I was thinking about things that I hadn't even thought about any of the previous times I thought about moving out. So, you know, I packed myself food so I'd have things to eat, you know, and I packed toiletries, like the toiletries I bought for myself so that I'd have things to use wherever I went. And I was very, very cautious of not taking anything big that my parents gave me because I was afraid if I took something big that they gave me, they might call the cops on me or they might use that to sort of control me. Like, oh, you know, you took our furniture or whatever and we let you take it. So therefore we helped you move out or something like that, you know? And since we helped you move out, you have to come visit us or you have to do this because you're still using our stuff. So I only took the things I had, which was mostly just like clothes and books and shoes, you know, and a few electronics too. And I didn't have enough bags, so I started shoving things into trash bags. And then I had to call an Uber to come to my house. I would have called my boyfriend because he lives pretty close to me. But we were afraid that my parents would see my boyfriend pick me up through my neighbor's dash cam. And they would assume that I was moving in with him. And then they would find his family because my boyfriend lives on the Air Force Base where my dad works. And then they would start a fight with his family. So, you know, I had to get an Uber to the Air Force Base instead so that my boyfriend could meet me there. And we packed all the things in his car. And when he saw the amount of stuff I had with him or with me, he got really scared because he realized that I was genuinely serious and I was not going back. And also, I didn't have a plan. So, you know, like, and it was kind of funny because I'm usually the one who worries a lot and who overthinks a lot. But in that moment, everything was just so clear to me. And I was like, I can't worry right now because I know that if I start worrying about one thing, I'm going to spiral and then I'm going to shut down and then nothing is going to work. So I have to stay focused. And I told him that too, you know, because he was freaking out because he expected me to be more nervous as well. And the fact that I wasn't nervous made him more nervous. And he was like, oh, I feel like you're not taking this seriously. And I was like, if you 
looked into my brain, you would see how seriously I'm taking this now, you know, but I can't be worried because we both know me and we know that I'm going to shut down if I get too worried. So I just followed my checklist. You know, I was like, go to the hotel, find a place to live in, get a car, go full time at your job, and then you could figure everything out later. And I actually ended up finding a place to stay that day. And I got really lucky with it too, because someone responded to me, you know, the morning of when I was packing everything up. So we set up a time for me to go to that room to check it out. And I just took it, you know, I didn't even second guess it. I was like, I want this one. When can I move in? And then after that, you know, everything else kind of just fell into place. There were a few hiccups in the road, you know, I'm not going to lie, but everything kind of fell into place. And I think the biggest thing for me was that I was finally making decisions for myself and I wasn't relying on somebody else to make a decision for me. Of course, you know, I had help, you know, my boyfriend's parents, they gave me a lot of good advice too when I moved out, but these final decisions were ones that were totally up to me about a future that I wanted and not about something that somebody else wanted for me. And I think it was also even more eye-opening because for so long I was being told that I could never move out and I didn't have what it took to move out, you know, and I couldn't make it on my own. And when I was making all these decisions, it kind of proved to me that I could, you know, and that I was smart enough and I was capable enough to do all of these things on my own and I didn't need them anymore. So that codependency that I had with them was really broken after those first few days because I saw that I didn't need them anymore the way that they were trying to tell me I needed them. Like for the longest time, I always felt like, you know, I had to do this or I had to do what they say because, you know, family unit above anything else. And it felt just so good to finally be an individual you know, and to think for myself. And I remember the morning after I had moved out, you know, when I was in my hotel, I started crying because I couldn't believe that I had actually moved out, you know, and it had actually happened. And I got myself out of such a terrible situation. And I was going to go to a place where I wouldn't let anyone treat me like that anymore. And it made me so happy because I used to lay in bed in my parents' house and, you know, cry myself to sleep. And I used to think to myself, this, is this how miserable I'm going to be all the time? You know, like this is never going to end. I'm always going to be miserable. And, you know, to see that it did end and I made it end, that was just so empowering for me. So uh, before we even get to like you setting up boundaries and and mm-hmm. and, and the things that you that you learned, uh, I mean, what was your parents' reaction right after that? Like, do you uh, like what happened? So the day that I moved out, you know, I was kind of contemplating not telling them and just letting them figure out, you know. But in the end, I didn't want to be like my parents and. You know, like I knew that despite the fact that we didn't hang out or that we didn't have a good relationship, they were still my family. And I was making a choice that would affect, you know, their family unit. And so 
I should be the bigger person and tell them face to face. So I got a ride back to my house and I was very nervous. I didn't tell them right away. I kind of just washed the dishes for the last time and built up the strength to tell them. And the thing is, I had told my sister before that I was moving out. So she already knew what was happening. So I kind of said my goodbyes to her, which was really weird because we knew that, you know, our relationship wasn't going to be the same anymore. And then I went downstairs to tell my parents and I just told them, mom and dad, I'm moving out. I have a place to stay so you don't have to worry about me. You know, I just wanted to let you know that I'm moving out. And I was expecting a fight, you know. I was expecting them to yell at me and to start screaming and all of these things. And, you know, they just sat on the couch and kept looking at the TV. They didn't even look up at me. And my dad was like, okay. And then I was like, okay. And I started making moves to leave. And he was like, wait. And, you know, I turned around and he said, can I do whatever I want to your room? And I, I just said, uh, sure, you know, whatever you want. And then he went back and they started scrolling through the TV shows. And then I just left. You know, and part of me was relieved that we didn't have that huge fight I was thinking we were going to have. And another part of me felt kind of upset that they went to such great lengths to make it seem like my moving out was nothing to them. And, you know, those first few days, they didn't contact me at all. And then my dad left a very, a very weird text message for me. It was very formal. He was talking to me like I wasn't his daughter and basically just saying that he wanted me to go back to my old room to clean up all the stuff there. And all the stuff that was there was stuff that they had bought. And it was things that they had told me repeatedly was their things. And they wanted me to go over there and pack up all of that stuff so that they could use my room. And so it was very weird. Like that was the type of, you know, relationship we had for a while. And then my mom, it was even weirder because she started sending me all of these sweet messages that she never sent me when I was living with her. So it was things like, oh, you know, you're my daughter. I'm your mom. You know, you're you're always going to be my daughter. Like, I love you. I hope you're having a good day. And that was stuff she never said to me when I was living with her. So it felt very weird. And I didn't really know how to take it. <laughs> and, and do you know how to take it now? Like, are you able to reconcile, like, why? Or are you able to, like, figure out, like, what was going on? Why they were being that way specifically? How they could be so enmeshed and keep you in the fold in one way. And then uh, when you break away them, not blinking an eye and reversing their, their patterns of behavior. I think um, they wanted, I think they wanted me to feel like it wasn't important to them, you know, when I moved out because to them, Everything is always about them. So to them, my moving out was meant to hurt them. And their retaliation to that was to make it seem like they didn't care that I moved out. And when I actually moved out, I think my dad started talking to me super formal because deep down, he sort of blamed himself, you know, for moving out. And I think he was kind of ashamed of his reaction to that. 
and he didn't really know how to talk to me anymore now that I wasn't under his control and now that I didn't have to do whatever he wanted me to do. Because the thing was, we had such a toxic relationship for such a long time. I think that after I left, he didn't know how to talk to me like the daughter anymore. So he just reverted to talking to me super formal and, you know, almost like an acquaintance. And my mom, I think it really hit home for her when I wasn't there that I really had moved out. And like I said before, she didn't have a good relationship with her parents. So I feel like she kind of had that self-reflection that the relationship they had might mirror the relationship that we were going to have. And I think that made her feel kind of upset, not in like a bad way, but kind of sad almost. And, you know, that was kind of the reason why, but then also, you know, on the other side of that, I think it was to maintain the image that she was, you know, this loving, doting mom to me. And I'm like, oh, we don't know why she moved out. She's not talking to us anymore, but we're always messaging her. You know, I'm so sweet all the time. Because, so like it's I like, said, so it's like she's trying mm-hmm. to outwardly tell these people one thing and then at the same time prove it to herself. So when she yeah. does say it, it's not a lie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, she doesn't want to be like her mom either. So I think by doing these things, she was able to tell herself like, oh, I'm not like my mom. Look at what I'm doing, you know? So a big thing for people when they leave their toxic families is setting boundaries and, Mm -hmm. you know, coming to an understanding of what actually happened so you don't repeat the same mistakes that they made. So how are you uh, battling through that? Well, I think... The first thing I had to do was to accept that I could end up like my parents if I didn't make changes. And I think that that was a very hard thing for me to accept. And I think that's just a very hard thing in general to accept because no one ever wants to believe that they could end up hurting someone the way that they were hurt before, you know, and the way I started realizing that was because I saw that I had the same anger issues my parents had, you know, like when I got angry, I got angry. And, you know, it only really happened like one time where I got really angry and I saw like, oh my God, you know, and I saw that some of the things I said was reflective of the things that they said. And that was really devastating to me, you know, because I didn't want to be anything like them. And after I accepted that, It was easier for me to motivate myself to take steps to change that, you know? So there was the going to therapy part, and I learned a lot more about my family dynamic and myself through that. And then, you know, there was the online resources as well that helped me out with, you know, anger management and learning better techniques. And, you know, I feel like now the problems that I have that are similar to them aren't as bad for me anymore. And I don't think that they're going to be because I think with my parents, they've reached a point in their lives where it's almost too late for them to really make any effective changes in the way that they behave, especially since they refuse to acknowledge that they have problems with their behavior. 
you know? And I feel like with just everyone in general, it's really important to acknowledge as soon as you can that, you know, you do have these problems and you have to work on them. And it's not something to be ashamed of, you know? Everybody has some sort of problems in their lives. And for me, anger management just happens to be one. And it's something that I have to work towards a little bit every day to make sure I don't end up that way. So, you know, like I said before, like the online resources and the therapy, and if you can't afford therapy, you know, like you can listen to podcasts instead. And there's just all of this other stuff that's available to kind of help make sure that you can build yourself into a better person than the people who hurt you are right now. That's a lot, but so what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, you got a hold of me, mm-hmm. which I, I kind of mentioned maybe briefly when we started talking at the beginning. And after you got a hold of me, I uh, emailed someone who offered mm-hmm. to help. And I emailed Saturday from the Saturday episode. And uh, Saturday, I uh, wanted to help here or there with putting some people's stories together to help mm-hmm. with uh, the back end process of, of the show. Uh, and this is what I sent um, Saturday in, in my email which was I had a brief call with someone who was 19 today and they want to tell their family story. I've recorded with others around the same age, but it never works out. There's something about this person that's different. I really want to do my best to help this person do, tell their story. She's a really sweet, soft-spoken kid who has a really good understanding of everything that happened. And, you know, I'm really proud of you today. I also want to acknowledge uh, Saturday who took all this information that you sent me and you guys mm-hmm. and you guys did this. I mean, you did a, like we're not even at the end, but I just wanted to say like um, there was something about you that um, right off the bat that I knew that you'd come on the show today and do just a, a really an amazing job uh, of telling your, not just your story being interesting for other people to hear, but as I said earlier, you're 19 years old. Some of the lines that came out of your mouth as far as being educational and to put words into other people's mouths to give them a vocabulary it was amazing. And nothing short of amazing. And you're, I just want to say, like, uh, thank you for coming on the show today. And we're not even done because I just want to <laughs> um, – we're almost done, everyone. But yeah. um, I guess one thing uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier is your sister. So yeah. what is your relationship like with your sister right now? And is it uh, healing? Or is your sister going to eventually make the move? Obviously, she's still a teenager. Um, mm-hmm. But how has her life been affected by you being gone? So, you know, with my sister, I know her life has gotten a lot harder now that I'm gone. You know, because there have been times where I would, you know, pick her up so she could hang out with her friends and she would tell me 
like they would get angry and blame her for a lot of things. And since I wasn't there, you know, I wasn't able to sort of jump in and support her. And I wasn't able to listen to her, you know, vent about it in the moment because I wasn't there. And she had to tell me afterward. And it kind of made me feel a little bit guilty because, you know, like here I am building my own life, but she's still stuck in the same position. And I know that for her, it's only going to get harder because she's reaching the age where my mom was when my mom had me. And when I started reaching that age, my mom started getting a lot harsher. And I know that's going to happen. And I saw it happening a little before with my mom, you know, picking on my sister's looks and the clothes that she wears and everything like that. So I had a lot of guilt for leaving her in that situation because I couldn't be there to protect her anymore or to listen to her because nobody listens to her in that house. You know, my sister always has to be the bigger person for both of my parents. And I feel like that's something that's very exhausting for such a young kid. She's only 14, you know, and she has to listen to my mom vent about my dad and support her while not talking badly about my dad. And then, you know, support my dad when he's angry at my mom. It's just so much. So sometimes it just makes me kind of sad that I can't be there to help her anymore. And it also makes me sad because, you know, I'm worried that there's going to come a time where she wants me to, you know, help her in a way that I can't do, you know, because now that we're not living in the same house anymore, I can't be there for her all the time. And I know like if she came to me and, you know, like ran away from our parents to get relief or something, I couldn't really let her stay with me. Because, you know, at that point, we could get in trouble for that, you know, because my parents might call the cops and accuse me of, you know, kidnapping her or something crazy and stuff like that. And so I'm worried there might become a time where she needs some sort of help like that. And I'm not going to be able to help her in the way that she wants me to. Because at that point, you have to figure out what the boundaries are uh, Mm -hmm. and how, you know, it's a tricky situation of being pulled back into the family dynamic like that when you're free um, and finding what is, uh, I guess the balance between guilt and, and, and uh, being dragged back in. So, um, you know, as we uh, close off uh, our show today and, you know, thanking Mm -hmm. you for, for being here, what uh, I guess would be your biggest words of uh, advice and uh, words of wisdom for others that are listening? Well, I'd say my first one would be that you can do things your abuser tells you you're incapable of, and you can't depend on the image they paint of you because it's going to be wrong. You know, when I was living with my parents, they told me that I was stupid. I was incapable of thinking for myself. I couldn't make it on my own, you know? And then when I did move out, I saw that all of that was untrue and I was smart and I was capable and I ran into, you know, some problems, like I said before, but I was able to, you know, keep a clear head and find solutions through them. 
And I think if you always depend on what your abuser says that you are, you're never going to be able to realize your full potential. And another major thing is that you can't keep excusing their bad behavior. Like when I was younger, I would make up all sorts of excuses for my parents. I'd say like, oh, you know, they had a bad childhood, so it's okay. You know, this is just how they are. It's okay. I can be the bigger person. I can be the one, you know, to say it's okay and just shove it all down underneath the rug and everything like that. But there is never any excuse for any type of abuse, whether that be physical, emotional, you know, mentally, no excuse. And it is not your job to make them feel better for the things that happened to them in the past. You know, it's your job to stay true to yourself and build a life for you. And if they're still stuck in the past, that's fine. They can do that, but you can't get sucked into that. You have to worry about your own future first. And, you know, if you grew up with parents like mine, that's going to involve a lot of therapy and self-work, like I said before. And I feel like this is going to be the same for a lot of people, but my parents really made it seem like therapy was a failure, you know, and if you had to go to therapy, you were crazy. And I just want everyone to know that that's totally not true. And if you need to go to therapy and if you feel like, you know, it's something that's right for you, then that's good. You know, you're thinking about things that are good for you and that's something you should be proud of. Going to therapy is never something you should be ashamed of. Some people just, you know, they went through a lot of things and they need help figuring it all out and that's okay. And as long as you do something, you know, every single day or consistently to improve yourself, then in the end, you're going to be winning and you're not going to end up in the same place. And that that's really all for the wisdoms that I have. Well, Lotus, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here today. You were amazing. So, uh, you know, from everybody and me, we're big, giving you again a second big hug. I'm giving you a high five too. You were fantastic. <laughs> so uh, thank you for, for being here with us all. And from Lotus and I, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>